as we continue this series called God's Glory in the Church, seeing how God's glory is displayed in that uh, primary function or one of the primary functions of the church, which is ministry, service, work done in the gospel and for each other. Today in this uh, letter that Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, who itself was struggling with uh, identifying and being faithful as Christians in a city that was dedicated to idol worship, I want us to see this and and to hone in on this main idea that God is glorified, His fame, His splendor associated with His manifest presence is made known when the church serves, when they minister for His purposes. God is glorified when the church works for God's purposes. And as we see this displayed in Ephesians 4, 11 to 16, I hope that we all would leave with newfound dedication and, and steadfast commitment to doing the work of serving, of doing ministry in the church and to our community so that Jesus would be exalted. And so that his body, which is the church, his bride, would grow together in unity, faith, and love as he is uh, on display through our work and our love for each other in the world. As we come to the text, I ask that you would uh, stand with me as you're able to honor God's word as we read it together, Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 16. The Apostle Paul writes, And he, that is Christ, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. May God bless us as we come to his word this morning. You may be seated. God is glorified when the church serves, when we do ministry for his purposes. We see God's glory in ministry in at least three different ways in this passage. And I'm going to do something that I don't normally do with these verses today. I'm going to preach them backwards. First of all, we see God's glory in his goal for the church, in his goal for the church. This is in verses 13 through 16, where there Paul says, until we all attain the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. God reveals his glory in his goal for the church in at least four different ways. There's four aspects to what he wants the church to be. First of all, we see his glory revealed in, un- in the unity of the faith. Unity of the faith. We see that in verse 13. This means specifically togetherness in the truth of the gospel. We read as we uh, had a call to worship this morning from a few verses just earlier in Ephesians chapter 4, where Paul says there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and in all and through all. When Paul says that God's desire for the church is unity of the faith, what he wants is collective agreement about the most important things of the gospel. That Jesus Christ, who, who is the eternal Son of God, was born a man, conceived divinely, 
uh, in the womb of Mary, and he lived a sinless life, died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin, the debt of sin that we owe a holy God, and was raised in victory three days later so that all who would trust in him, turn from sin, give their life to Jesus, would be forgiven of sin and enter into a new, right, justified relationship with God. This is the most important thing that we must be united in, and it is God's desire for us to do so. Dear friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you would not identify yourself as one who follows Christ. Understand that this is what God wants for every one of His churches, every local expression of the body of Christ in every place that they are, to be united in this. And if you think that you can be a Christian apart from believing and trusting Jesus, who is at the core of the gospel, the core of Christianity, you've missed it entirely. Dear Christian, church family, brothers and sisters, we must be united in the faith this way. It is God's goal for us. Not only this, but God desires that we not not only have unity of faith, but also knowledge of the Son of God, knowledge of Jesus. The word that is used here for knowledge is the Greek word epigenosis. You don't have to know that or memorize it. It's just fun to say out loud sometimes. Epigenosis means full and definite knowledge of something. In this case, it's full and definite knowledge of Jesus. What, 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 is, what is understood in that? Well, think about it this way. In my marriage to my wife, Nikki, I have a certain epigenosis of her. I have a certain sort of full and definite knowledge of her. Not because I know things about her, but because in life and in marriage and in parenting and, and in faith together, I have come to know her deeply. To, to understand how she thinks about the world and, and understand how she responds to different challenges and experiences and things like that in our life. And she has that same sort of knowledge of me. I just don't, I, I don't know only what her favorite color or favorite flower is. I know more important things about her than that. I have a certain kind of full and definite knowledge of her. And that is the kind of knowledge, although even deeper, that Paul is saying God desires for the church of Jesus, a full and definite knowledge of of Jesus, to understand him fully, to, to have this knowledge of him working itself out in our faith, in our relationship with him. We're not meant to only know facts about the historical Jesus, but to know the Son of God intimately and experientially. This is part of God's goal for the church, unity of faith, knowledge of the Son of God, and third, maturity in Christ. God desires that his church grow in maturity. What is the standard of our maturity? Well, there we see in verse 13 that we are to grow up to mature manhood. Look at this, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We are to grow up into Jesus. This phrase, measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, is kind of a, uh, it is a loaded phrase there in the text. I had to read it about 25 times, I think, this week to, to really understand what that is. You could, you could meditate on this phrase, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, for a long, long time and, and maybe not fully flesh out what it means. But here's what I, here's what I think it, it means most plainly. That is, God calls us to grow up to mature manhood to adulthood as Christians, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, what he's saying is that he wants us to grow complete as a disciple. Having, having fully filled out, if we can put it this way, every nook and cranny of our life with Christ-likeness. That, that Christ would fill up every part of who we are. That there wouldn't be no, no thought of our mind, no affection of our heart, no action of our lives that is not filled up with Jesus-ness. 
Paul says we grow up into mature manhood, and he contrasts maturity in Christ with immaturity, right? What does immaturity, spiritual immaturity look like? Well, the chief mark or chief markers of, of spiritual immaturity are these two things, confusion about the truth and theological gullibility. Confusion about the truth and theological gullibility. He says the point of growing up in the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, verse 14, is so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Here's a picture of a, of a boat sort of adrift at sea that is just victim to the, the current of the ocean and the winds that are blowing and the waves that are crashing upon it. He says to be mature in Christ is not to be tossed about by false teaching, by people who would, uh, who, who would say that they are proclaiming a gospel using Jesus-y language while all at the same time undermining what the gospel actually is. Just because someone uses Bible-type languages does not mean that they can't pervert the gospel by making it, by using, you know, Bible words to say something completely different. A mark of maturity is being able to discern even when somebody is being deceptive about what the gospel is. Mark of maturity is not falling for false teaching without questioning it, without seeking for truth to find out what is, what is really being taught here. I've said before, every Sunday morning, if you who are listening to me should be asking yourself, is the preacher right? Is he speaking truth? You should be listening, not with a critical spirit, but you should be listening critically. You should be listening to make sure that I am not lying about what God has said, because that's a mark of maturity. God reveals his glory in the unity of faith in the church, knowledge of Jesus, maturity in Christ, and finally, in the true love that characterizes the body altogether. In the final analysis, the point of all of this is not just individual maturity. God does not intend just for Stephen to grow up as a Christian on his own, but collective maturity. He wants the whole body to grow up in Christ-likeness together. It is interesting in some sense that when God looks upon, when Christ looks upon his body, his bride, the church, he does see each and every individual. All of us are responsible for answering the call to trust Jesus as Lord and Savior as individuals, but also he looks upon us as a whole, as a, a family unit of sorts. And he does not want our, only our individual maturity, but our collective maturity. He wants our church to be a mature church, a spiritually mature church. So what does that look like? What does collective maturity look like? How do we know if we've attained it? Well, as Paul fleshes out for us in verses 15 and 16, it looks like a body unified that doesn't discount one member or another. There's no elbow telling a knee, I don't need you. No hand telling a foot, you're no use here. But each part, every part of the body, working together, working properly to build itself up in order to serve the will of the head who is not the senior pastor, but who is Christ. How do we do this? How do, we, how do we grow up in Christ? How do we grow in maturity as a body, not just as individuals, but as a body of believers? We do it in love. Paul says, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. 
We do this by loving one another, by caring for one another, by putting the needs of others before ourselves, by intentionally doing spiritual good for others in our body so that we can all grow up, the body of Christ strengthened to glorify Jesus. How does a strong body glorify Jesus? When we grow up into Christ, the church, his body, exalts the glorious Son of God as the rightful head of the church. When the body is strong, when the body of Christ is strong, following his lead, it holds him as head high for everyone to see. His will is known. His truth is communicated clearly. He is, he is not, uh, his representation is not being distracted by our uh, frailty and weaknesses because we're not willing to help one another to grow in love. God's goal for the church is to be mature, to be strong as a body, united in faith, grown up in Christ, so that Jesus shows, so that Jesus shines, so that Jesus is glorified. God's goal, which is to glorify Jesus in the life of the church, is not done so apart from his plan for achieving it. And so we look at the end of verse 12 to see God's glory... His fame, his splendor, associated with his manifest presence, revealed in his plan for the growth of the church, his plan for achieving his goal for the church. And it is this, to uh, equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Work of ministry for building up the body. How is God going to achieve in his church maturity and the glorious revelation of Christ? through the works of service that the church does, through the work of ministry that the church does for each other and in the world. We are to grow up into Christ. This is God's goal. It's his intention for us. And he does this in us. He will cause us to grow, not simply through studying harder, not simply through intellectualism. We will grow in maturity in Christ, not simply by sitting around and waiting to get older, No, we build up the body of Christ. God builds up the body of Christ as we do those works of service that he has called us to do. Think here of of, uh, Ephesians 2, verses uh, maybe uh, 8 through 10, where Paul says, It's by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. But we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk walk in them. Paul says that we are to do the work of ministry. That word that is translated ministry is the Greek word diakonios. It's the same word, uh, shares the root of the, uh, of the word uh, uh, diakonos, which we translate as deacon. That word diakonios means essentially rendering assistance, giving help by, prefer- by performing certain duties of a humble or menial nature. By doing the work that nobody sees, and that nobody ever really gets credit for. This is what it means to do works of ministry. God intends for the church to grow up through serving, to be mature, to be strengthened as the body of Christ through serving, through sacrificing our preferences and our time, and and through prioritizing our lives for the sake of others in the body. If the church wants to, if any local church wants to grow in maturity, they must do these works of service that God has called us to do. So consider, member of First West, how you might serve the body at First West for the sake of our collective maturity in Christ. 
maybe you would, maybe God would be calling or leading you to serve with children or preteens. We have always constant need for more people to serve with children and preteens. I've never met a church yet that has a fully staffed, uh, a, a full staff of volunteers for their children's ministry. Um, and the day that I meet it will probably be the day that Christ returns. Uh, this is just an area of constant need in the church. Many of us are parents. We have children. We know how important it is and how helpful even to our own discipling efforts uh, with our children that it is to have other people in the church willing to serve for their sake of knowing Christ and growing in Him. Working with children and preteens is hard. It is a task. It is work that will humble you. It feels menial at times, and it is often dirty work. And yet, This is the kind of service that God calls his church to do so we can all grow up in maturity. But not only there, also maybe youth as well, middle school and high school. Maybe God is calling you, member of First West, to work with our middle school and high school students. Those are strange ages. I know, I lived through them. Seventh and eighth grade were weird. High school was awkward. And yet, my life, I am not who I am apart from godly men who gave time and prioritized my spiritual well-being on Sunday mornings, Sunday nights, Wednesday nights for the sake of me growing up in Christ. And in so doing, I I think in some way they, they brought maturity to the body in their service. Maybe God would have you serve in our church right now by visiting those of our members who are elderly and who are homebound particularly during this pandemic time. We have, we have many members who are not able to worship with us today and haven't been able to worship with us in person in the last month or so. It's a hard thing to have to be home and away from the church, and yet there is much that can be done as the church uh, in terms of maturity and growth that can be done as we care for and love one another and take time out of our day to go visit with a brother or sister who's not able to get out and fellowship with the church. Maybe God would call you to serve, to do these humble, menial tasks that lead to the maturity of the body by opening your home, opening your life to care for single mothers in our church or grandparents who are raising their grandchildren, either in our church or maybe even just in your neighborhood. Maybe God would call you to serve by taking others with you as you go to serve in Jesus' name at maybe a local homeless shelter or a soup kitchen where there you, are, you are serving the, the real physical needs of people in our community but alongside another brother or sister with whom you can have spiritual conversations and seek to grow together. Maybe God would call you to serve in the church by making disciples, by taking time to share coffee and read the Bible and help another Christian to grow and to walk through those hard parts of their life or faith. This is how maturity happens. This is how strength in the body of God comes about by doing works of service. You know that you're not going to get stronger, you're not going to get healthier, you're not going to be able to run a marathon or, run a, or, or compete in a triathlon unless you do some physical work and some physical training. No pain, no gain. And that's somewhat true when it comes to maturity in the body of Christ. God wants to glorify Jesus, the head of the church, by having a strong body to lift Jesus high in the strength that he provides. But we do that best as we work hard at serving one another. God is glorified in his end goal for the church. He's glorified in his plan for bringing about growth and maturity. And we see finally God's glory in his gifts to the church. His gifts to the church. Look at verses 11 and 12 again. Paul says, He that, he's speaking about Christ, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. 
God wants to exalt Jesus' head over the church. He wants the church to grow and mature and be strong in order to do that. And, and how does God ensure that the church will be able to do the works of service that he has called them to do? By giving them gifts to equip them. These gifts are listed in verse 11, apostles, prophets, evangelists, and shepherd teachers. The English Standard Version says shepherds and teachers, but I think the, the construction uh, in the original language in which Paul wrote makes it uh, so that these two should be considered uh, one and the same, shepherd teachers, pastor teachers. The first two of these gifts, apostles and prophets, these are not just spiritual gifts, these are gifts of people, are those that I believe have, have sort of um, faded, uh, faded out of God's uh, plan for the church. We see the apostles and the prophets spoken mostly about, most clearly about in the New Testament, like in Acts. But as the book of Acts goes along, the apostles, um, uh, as, they, as they die, some are martyred. They're not replaced by others. As the word of God goes out and as the, uh, the gospels are being written and as, as Paul is writing and Peter is writing and their letters are being circulated throughout the known world, uh, we don't see the apostles being replaced. We don't hear about prophets um, being quite as, um, uh, as, as forthrightly spoken about in the church. It just seems that those gifts are fading as the word of God is being established. Like now that we have God's word, we don't necessarily need apostles or prophets to affirm that this is what God has said because we have it written for us. But there are two gifts that remain, evangelists and shepherd teachers evangelists are those who uh, in the early centuries, uh, the early, the first century church traveled around the world, proclaiming the gospel, planting churches, uh, um, not unlike modern missionaries today. And then we have these shepherd teachers or pastor teachers. Uh, this is, as I've said before, probably one, one office, one type of person that God gives to the church for leading, teaching, uh, equipping the church for doing ministry. The important thing here to note is, is not necessarily to get caught up in the weeds of apostles, prophets, evangelists, teachers, but to notice that the gifts, the gifts that God gives to the church are people. Living, breathing human beings, saved by grace, through faith, same as anybody else, who are called to lead and teach and to guide the saints. And God gives these gifts for equipping. Not for doing all the work of ministry, but for equipping. These gifts are given to train the church to, to help Christians to grow into the calling that God has placed upon all of our lives as Christians. The role of these leaders today, evangelists, pastor, teachers, is ultimately to equip the saints, to get them ready for work, to accomplish God's plan for growing the church. It is my job, my ministry, as one of the pastors in the church, to equip you for doing ministry. It is part of Pastor Danny's role as one of the pastors of our church to equip the church for doing ministry, for caring for others, for making disciples. It's not upon us to do all of that work, but part of our ministry is to equip you, dear church, for doing the same. I want us for a moment to consider the wisdom of recognizing the gifts that God has given to the church. And by this, I don't mean that we're having a spontaneous pastor appreciation Sunday. Just consider this in a practical way. Consider there is a licensed roofer who teaches classes on roofing, and he has 100 students that are signed up to become licensed roofers as well under his instruction. Roofing, however, is not the kind of task, it's not a kind of job that you can just lecture somebody about, say, this is how you do it, now off you go. 
Roofing is the kind of thing you got to get up on a ladder, get up on a roof, and you got to kind of get down and dirty to do it. And I've done enough, uh, or, or I've witnessed enough roofing projects gone bad to know how important good training for roofing is. But if you have one licensed roofer trying to train a hundred apprentices to do the same work, how effective will that one be? He's going to have to go one by one through a hundred different people, hands-on, intensive time spent with them, showing them how to lay shingles and set a line and uh, you know, nail the shingles down, line them all up so you don't get leaks and all of that sort of thing. Certainly one licensed roofer could train a hundred others, but it's going to take a long time to do it. What if he had five or ten other licensed roofers that were working with him? What if he had others who were also skilled and had put in the time and were able to equip others as well. How much quicker, how much more efficiently, how much more effectively would they be at equipping those to do their job? So it is in the church. Currently, our, our church recognizes two pastors, myself and Pastor Danny. And I believe that God desires for us as a church to unwrap more of his gifts to the church. That God has given to every church many men, Multiple men who are able to pastor the church, to, to give spiritual care to the body. I'll be honest, I am, I am weak and I am limited. It is hard for me to give spiritual care for 250 members. That's, that's, that's hard. It's hard even for, just, for Pastor Danny and I to do it together. That is a big task. But dear friends, there are men that God has placed in our church that I think are gifts of God, who don't have to be you know, called as a full-time pastor to, to also give spiritual care and direction and help and to equip the saints for the work of ministry. This may sound odd because many of us uh, may be part of churches that have had, you know, only one sole senior pastor all the time. All I know is that I'm, I'm not proud enough to say that I can do it on my own. Not proud enough to say that I've got all the wisdom <laughs> in our church for equipping saints to do the work of ministry. But I do believe that God in his wisdom has given us gifts. The glory of God in his provision to the church shines in the gifts that he gives to the church. Not because these people are particularly special, but because God uses them to equip the saints to become strong, to do the work of ministry that exalts Jesus as the head. So I want to call those who are listening today, especially men of our church. Is God calling you this way? Has God gifted you with the ability to teach, with a zeal and a skill in evangelism? Has God given you a passion for his word and for seeing others grow in their maturity in Christ and to help them to do the same in the lives of others? Consider whether maybe God is calling you to lead as a shepherd teacher in the church. Certainly, this is not something we just recognize willy-nilly. You know, somebody says, oh, yeah, that's me, and we just, you know, whatever. It's a church decision. The church recognizes the, corporately recognizes the call of different individuals to this task. But I believe that God, God is so much better, and I think he knows that one guy can't do it all, nor is he called to do it all. And I think God intends to give many gifts to the church for their good, for our maturity, so that Christ can be exalted and glorified. Today, you may glorify God by answering the call to give your life to equip saints for the glorious work of God that results in glory to Jesus. Perhaps God would call you, brother or sister, to the mission field to do this, to equip saints for 
sharing the gospel in places where the gospel is not known. Perhaps, brothers, he would be calling you to serve as a, uh, as a pastor, um, maybe soon, maybe one day down the road. You don't have to be young or old to do this. You don't have to have seminary education to be a pastor. It's a gift. It's a call of God. And we do well as a church to recognize the gifts that God has given to us and to unwrap them for his glory. God is glorified. His fame, his splendor are on display as he brings the church to maturity and strength in Christ so that the head, which is Jesus, shines in the world. And we do this by serving each other, doing those works of ministry with each other and in the world as we are equipped by those that God has given to lead, teach, pastor, and equip us to do so. God is glorified when his church does ministry for his purposes, when we serve for his will, when we live out our calling, our vocation in life. By the way, let me just say the vocation to be called by God doesn't mean just to be a, a full-time pastor at a church. You can be a full-time particle physicist <laughs> and also be one who equips the saints for the work of ministry. Knowing that God uses all sorts of people for his glory to equip the church. I close with this prayer, which is titled Vocation. Another prayer from our Puritan brothers. Hear this and pray this with me. Heavenly Father, thou hast placed me in the church which thy son purchased by his own blood. Add grace to grace that I may live worthy of my vocation. I am a voyager across life's ocean, safe in heaven's ark. May I pass through a troubled world into the harbor of eternal rest. I am a tree of the vineyard thou hast planted. Grant me not to be barren with worthless leaves and wild grapes. Prune me of useless branches. Water me with dews of blessing. I am part of the Lamb's bride, the church. Help me to be true, faithful, chaste, loving, pure, devoted. Let no strong affection wantonly dally with the world. May I live high above a love of things temporal, sanctified, cleansed, unblemished, hallowed by grace. Thy love, my fullness, thy glory, my joy, thy precepts, my pathway, thy cross, my resting place. My heart is not always a flame of adoring love, but resting in thy son's redemption, I look forward to the days of heaven where no languor shall oppress, no iniquities chill, no mists of unbelief dim the eye, no zeal ever tires. Father, these thoughts are the stay, prop, and comfort of my soul. And so, Father, glorify yourself in your church as we do the work of ministry that you have called us to do. For Christ's sake and for our good, amen.